The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. Jesus' warning to Sardis. Some time ago when uh, I was uh, reading John MacArthur's exposition of this, he used an illustration that really stuck with me. I'd like to begin with it. Uh, He was talking about the phenomenon of distant starlight. Physicists tell us that light travels at a constant rate, 186,000 miles per second. And because this universe is so vast, cosmologists have invented a unit of measurement called the light year, which is the distance that light travels in a year. If you do the math, it works out to 5.88 trillion miles a year. Because stars are so distant uh, from the Earth... It takes that distant starlight many years to travel to the earth. So the light of every star that we see twinkling in the night sky was actually sent toward the earth many, many years ago. Maybe even centuries ago. For example, the stars that make up the Big Dipper, which is the most famous constellation, range from 78 to 123 light years away from the earth. So what that means is the next time you stand and look up at the night sky and you look at the Big Dipper, you're actually looking back in time. You're looking, for the most part, at starlight that began its journey earthward over a century ago. What that means is it's actually possible that some or many of the stars in the Big Dipper no longer exist. We don't know for a fact. We won't really know until that star goes dark. But it may be that it's already the case... That one or two of the stars in the handle or in the drinking gourd part is is gone. doesn't exist anymore. But the light has been traveling all this time and hasn't reached us yet. MacArthur used that as an illustration for the church at Sardis. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus said to this church at Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. They were living on past glories. They were living on past starlight. And they were walking around with the appearance of life. And they had a reputation. But they actually were dead. They were a dead church. Not much different than taking a tour of an archaeological site in Europe or in the Near East. In the Greek or Roman world, for example. Go, go and see the Parthenon, the Acropolis in Athens or some of these other ancient Greek structures in Athens. Or the Colosseum in ancient Rome that's still there today. And you can be there in modern Rome and see the Colosseum. But it's evidence of a vigorous, wealthy, powerful empire still to some degree living off the reputation of past deeds. A faded glory, a glory of a dead empire. We say appearances can be deceiving. But nowhere is that more true spiritually than in this realm of churches and the spirit and the individuals as well. 
the genuine spiritual state of both individuals and churches, appearances can be deceiving. It's actually possible for an individual person or a church to appear to be alive spiritually, but actually to be dead. When it comes to the individual, the Puritans called such an individual a gospel hypocrite. The word hypocrite actually is related to the Greek word for actor. Someone who puts on a mask. And so when it comes to the Christian gospel, it has to do with someone who goes through the forms, the outward motions of Christianity, but inside, dead. Jesus spoke to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Well, the same thing can happen to a church as a whole. It can be living on past reputation of spiritual vitality. But inside there's nothing going on spiritually. There's no vitality. Church is dead. Now, Christ's words to this dead church stand as a timeless warning to all churches in all locations throughout all time. Any church can turn at some point in its history from a vibrant, loving community of saints that's reaching out in its community, in its world with the gospel of Jesus Christ courageously and boldly. They can turn from that and begin a decline toward spiritual deadness, toward death as a congregation. And that church might still have a reputation as being a great church. But somewhat like Samson, shorn of his hair, didn't realize that God had left him. Didn't realize the power was gone. And so also this church at Sardis did not know that their reputation had far outlasted their actual spiritual life. Now... This is a very practical problem all over the country, all over America. Previously, vibrant churches are dying or have died. I drive by churches like that every time I drive here. Even churches that First Baptist Church planted decades ago. Some of them have a name and a reputation, but they're dead. Their time is gone. It happens. It's going on all over the, the, the country. One poll shows that between 8,000 and 10,000 local churches die every year. While only about 1,000 new churches are planted every year. You just heard about the Annie Armstrong uh, uh, offering for North American Mission Board. What they're trying to do is plant churches. That's where, uh, among other uh, entities, that's where the 1,000 uh, new churches are being planted by NAM and other entities. But only 1,000, whereas eight to 10,000 are dying every year. So why? Why do so many previously flourishing local churches die? That's a question that today's passage is going to lead us to consider. Now, Tom Rayner uh, wrote a book a, a couple of years ago called Autopsy of a Dead Church. Kind of a potent image, isn't it? Autopsy of a Dead Church. It stands as a warning to living churches... To, as Jesus said to the small remnant within this dead church of Sardis, to wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So, taking his image, then this morning we're going to do the sad work of walking into a cold morgue 
and seeing the coroner pull out the corpse of a local church, church at Sardis, and describe how that corpse, how that one died. We're going to look into the face of, of such a church so that we can be warned, that we can be revived, that we can be revitalized ourselves as a church, renewed in our zeal for Christ. We're going to ask the Lord to search us and know our hearts and, and show us if any spiritual deadness is creeping in, necrosis is working its way through our soul. We are going to be moved, I hope, with a healthy fear of this happening to First Baptist Durham. And that by God's grace, we would seek to avoid the same fate as the church at Sardis. I think this is what's implied in the final statement in all these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's unwise for any church, no matter how healthy and vibrant, to read this letter to Sardis and say, well, thank God that's not us. There's nothing we need to hear uh, concerning this. There's no warning for us, we're fine. That would be a, the, the worst way you could listen to these six verses. The most powerful tool in the hands of Almighty God for the building of the church of Jesus Christ is a healthy local church. Led biblically by godly elders, passionate for the glory of God, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel with courage in its community. Discipling one another toward holiness and Christ-likeness. That's a fearsome weapon in the hand of God. Satan knows this, so he's fighting the battle all around the world at the local church level. And so this issue of spiritual deadness is something that we have to face. We need to study why churches die, even more, how they live, how they're fruitful so that FBC can continue to be a weapon for the glory of God in the salvation of lost sinners. So let's dig in and begin with Christ's description of himself. And he starts as he does in all of these seven letters. Remember, just for those of you who have not been here... Uh, Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John, an exile to Patmos, had a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ moving among seven golden lampstands. And it's a symbol, and it's interpreted for us in that chapter, of Jesus' active ministry to local churches around the world. And so these seven represent the number of fullness or perfection. So Jesus is similarly engaged and active in every genuine local church around the world. So he's having a priestly ministry. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, he writes letters to each of these seven churches and addresses their conditions. These were real churches that, that really lived at John's, in John's day. But the lessons in each of these, these letters are timeless. And so the warning comes and the encouragement to each of, each, each of us to listen to all seven letters and take to heart these things. So he begins, as he always does, with verse 1. These are the words... These are the words of him who, etc. He's talking his words. He's talking about the words of Christ. The link between Christ's words and spiritual life is obvious throughout the New Testament. Especially in some places like this. John 5, 24. Jesus said this, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. The very next verse. John 5.25. Jesus says. I tell you the truth. A time is coming. And has now come. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. And those who hear will live. So you see the link between Jesus speaking. And dead people coming to life. 
It has that kind of power. So in verse 1, these are the words. It says in John 6, 63, The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. As Moses said in Deuteronomy, these are not idle words for you. These are your life. So that's the link between Jesus' words and life. In the same way, Jesus yearns to speak life into the deadness of the church at Sardis. Reminds me of that powerful image in Ezekiel. Remember of the dry bones. And the Lord commands the prophet Ezekiel, speak, prophesy to the dry bones and tell them to live. And there's a process and you can read it in Ezekiel 37. But it's as the word is proclaimed and as the spirit moves like a wind, these dead bones come to life. And so there's this link between the proclamation of the prophetic word of God and the activity of the spirit in bringing individuals from death to life. It's only by the words of Christ that the spiritually dead come to life. So how does he identify himself? Look at verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as I've said, in every one of these seven letters, Jesus identifies himself by some aspect of the vision that he gave to the apostle John in chapter 1. So Christ, the resurrected, glorified son of man, is moving through the seven golden lampstands representing Seven local churches, but also the totality of all of the local churches around the world, ministering actively. And it's a a clear picture of his constant, vigilant, active ministry to every local church around the world. He actively knows about and cares about all of his churches. And he describes himself as he who holds the seven spirits of God. Now, what is the seven spirits of God? How do we understand this? Well, I think it must refer to the Holy Spirit... The third person of the Trinity. We know this because in Revelation chapter 1. He uses the same expression. But it's in a clearly Trinitarian pattern or formula. Revelation 1 verses 4 and 5. Grace and peace to you. From him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God. And from the seven spirits before the throne. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. And then from Jesus Christ. Who is the faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you have that Trinitarian formula. So the seven spirits must refer to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Again, you have it in Revelation 4. Before the throne of God, the seven lamps are blazing. And these are the seven spirits of God. And again in Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had, listen, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So I believe it's very clear that this is referring to the Holy Spirit of God. Well, why would the solitary spirit, so to speak, the person of the spirit, be referred to as the seven spirits? Well, I don't know for a fact. By the way, as we go through Revelation, I'm going to say again and again, I don't know. And, you know, we can talk about it after. I don't know. What do you think? There's just so much symbolic imagery here. And, you know, you can't look to the back of the book for the answers. This is the back of the book. And the back of the book asks more questions sometimes than giving answers. There's so many unanswered questions. It's a hard book to interpret. But I think we should look at it more as the sevenfold spirit of God rather than seven individual spirits. Some scholars link it to uh, Isaiah 11, which talks, uh, gives seven designations of the Spirit. First, the Spirit of the Lord. Talking about the anointing of the Messiah, Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then there's, there's three couplets of two each. So three times two is six. Plus the Spirit of the Lord adds up to seven. 
This is how the interpretation goes. The spirit of wisdom and of its understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So they point to that. In other words, these are seven effects of the activity of the spirit on Jesus. The number seven is the number of perfection. So I guess we would look on the spirit's perfect and powerful effectiveness in bringing about God's plan. That's what we would think of in terms of the spirit of, of God. And so the church at Sardis is dead. But the evidence of that deadness is a lack of obvious activity of the spirit of God there. The problem in that they, you don't see, you're not encountering the spirit of God in the life of the church. The spirit gives life. A spirit-filled church is alive. It's crackling with energy. Spiritual energy is defined by the word of God. The word of God is powerfully proclaimed. The, the worship of God is energetically flowing. The people are passionate about it. The fruit of the spirit is obvious in the people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The fruit, the fruit of the spirit is obvious. The power of the spirit is on them... For bold, risky proclamation of the gospel in their community and to the ends of the earth. Uh, all of these things are produced by the Holy Spirit. And so it is the Spirit of God alone who can revive a dead church. It is because the Spirit of God was grieved through sin. And quenched in some way. That the church has grown dead. Now, how does Jesus hold the seven spirits of God? Well, we shouldn't think of it in terms of ownership. There's a, a, an intimate connection between Jesus and the spirit of God in terms of his messianic ministry. He was Messiah or Christ, same, same uh, idea, when the Greek, when the Hebrew, anointed. And the clear indication is he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit came upon Jesus. And so it says in Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So there's a strong connection between Jesus and the Spirit. And again, in Luke 4.14, after his temptation in the desert, he was led by the Spirit into the desert. He returned out of the desert of temptation filled with the Spirit. Great picture for those of us that are tempted. Enter the temptation filled with the Spirit. Leave the temptation filled with the Spirit. But it says in Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And then Peter to Cornelius said in Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So Jesus said at the end of his ministry, he promised his disciples that he would pour forth the Holy Spirit of God from the Father. So the Father and the Son pour out the Spirit. John the Baptist said in, in uh, Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one more powerful than I. The sandals of whom I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus himself said, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Spirit comes from the Father through the Son to the churches. Jesus holds the sevenfold Spirit of God because it is in his power to pour out his Spirit on the church. He also holds the seven stars. Now the seven stars represent 
uh, seven messengers of the churches, perhaps pastors, preachers. Those are some of the interpretations. And so a godly proclamation ministry sets the tone for the entire life of the church. I really think it's the most significant thing that happens in the life of any church is the preaching of the word. doesn't matter who does it. What matters is what is preached. So you can measure the health of the church first and foremost by the preaching ministry and then all the things that flow from it. And so he holds the seven stars in his right hand. He owns them and he protects them. Now, this church at Sardis, we don't know that much about it. Um, I think it was probably part of the church planting movement that started out of, the, out of Ephesus. That's mentioned in Acts 19.10, where it says the whole region heard about the word of the Lord because Paul was there for two years. So I think he was just sending out teams of people throughout Asia Minor. And I think all seven of these churches, or the other six, were planted in that way. Sardis, the city, has a long history um, that I'm not going to go into at all. I'm going to just move on. You can look it up. X. All right. Christ diagnoses the church at Sardis. And he says, you are dead. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. It's just, even now, that brings chills to me. Goosebumps. Imagine Jesus saying that to a church. And he knows it by looking at their deeds. He can read their hearts. But you just look at the deeds. The fruit is dead. There's always a link between heart, the nature, and the fruit. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. So all Jesus has to do is just look at the deeds. I know your deeds, you're dead. Some years ago, as many of you know, I built a tree house. I won't ask for a show of hands how many of you know I, I, I built a tree house. But that's where I write my sermons. And practice them and, and different things. It's a place of, of uh, uh, prayer for me. Well, I had big plans for this treehouse. It was going to be a, a big treehouse. Um, someone called it the Taj Mahal of treehouses. It has a baseboard heater and a picture window and all kinds of cool things in it. But when I put the first board in it, a 2 by uh, 10 I secured it to a tree with a lag screw that was 5 eighths of an inch in diameter and 5 inches long. That thing's not going to move. Okay? It had a sheer strength of something like 150,000 pounds. All right? And I drove that screw right into the heart of the tree. Apparently, the tree didn't like it. In the following months and years, the tree just didn't flourish. It didn't do very well. Finally, around this time of year, a few years ago, I was anxiously looking at this tree, which was holding up one quarter of the treehouse. And there were no leaves at all in the spring. Nothing. I had killed the tree. And the way that I knew was by looking for evidence of life. Over the next two years, the tree gradually rotted until, thankfully, soon after I realized the tree was dead, I put in two, two, two four-by-fours to support, and I think that the treehouse is going to be fine. But that tree is gone, literally gone. It rotted straight down and is uh, entirely removed. The way I knew is just by looking for evidence of life. Now, in that tree, it's not a fruit tree, so that fruit were leaves. And there weren't any leaves. There's no life. There's no evidence. It says in John 15, 2, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And those branches are collected and thrown into the fire and burned. It's a picture of hell. So, there are works that uh, show life, and the works of a healthy church are obvious. 
As we've talked about, clear and powerful proclamation of the word of God from the pulpit. Vigorous spirit-filled worship. Committed, sacrificial, loving community among the members of the church. Bold, consistent proclamation of the gospel in that community and even as they're able to the ends of the earth. Sacrificial ministry to the poor and needy. These are some of the marks of a, of a living church. Beyond that, each individual Christian has their own unique special set of good works which the Lord has prepared in advance that they should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. So healthy churches prepare the members individually of the, the church to be fruitful themselves in lots of good works that they all are doing. That's an alive church, isn't it? Don't you want to be part of a church like that? That's, what, that's a living church. There's fruit going on. Well, this church had a name of being alive, but they're actually dead. They had a reputation, literally a name of life. Perhaps all the works that gained them that name and reputation have been done many years before. Those past heroes that maybe planted that church in Sardis and that led it early on, they're gone, it seems like. And in their place, there's deadness. I, have, I just love church history. I have visited the, the churches of many of my heroes of the faith. And it's actually pretty sad to do that. I've been to Geneva. I've been to the St. Pierre Cathedral where John Calvin preached. And it's an, effectively a museum is what it is. I think there are worship services that happen there. And there may even be an evangelical congregation there. It's just a very old feeling there. And the surrounding area doesn't seem to know anything about John Calvin. That's in Geneva. I've been to Wittenberg where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. And I don't know the health of that church. One church I do know the health of is Jonathan Edwards Church in Northampton. That church went theologically, aggressively liberal many, many years ago. And they wrestle with the heritage of Jonathan Edwards, which doctrines they do not hold at all. And actually, when we were there on sabbatical a few years ago, went in Northampton, they were having a, a Buddhist monk coming on Wednesday night to talk to people about meditation at Jonathan Edwards Church. So it's sad, you know, the... Churches can be on fire for Christ and then things cool off and then within a generation or two or three, there's nothing there, nothing going on at all. Well, the question is why? Why does this happen? Why was the church at Sardis dead? Well, the cause of death is always the same. It's, it's not a shock to you. It's sin. The wages of sin is death. James 1, 14 and 15 said, Each one is tempted when by his own evil de desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's how it happens. Now, the specifics are not as important as the state. Because the specifics really aren't mentioned here. We don't know why they died. Perhaps there was false doctrine there. We don't know. Perhaps uh, there was some immorality. We don't know. It doesn't say anything about Balaam or the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. I don't have any of that. However, there is a, a, a marking in verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So there's a sense perhaps of immorality, but that might be referring to false doctrine as well. We just don't know. We don't know if it's a matter of persecution, but as one uh, commentator said, why would Satan persecute a dead church? Can I just tell you he doesn't? There's no need. They're not doing anything. There's no threat. So we don't really know. Maybe some of the same problems, a combination. In any case, they're dead. And little by little, spiritual vigor can just drain out of a local church. 
Godly leaders can get old and die. The next generation comes along, they don't share their same passion, their same vision, and it just goes away. The world can start to encroach with its relentless appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. The church can stop preaching the clear gospel of Christ to the surrounding community, or it can alter certain aspects of the message to tailor them to popular tastes so that they can, you know, be more amenable to the surrounding uh, community. The witnesses can increasingly fear persecution and pull back on the vigor and the frequency of their witness. Tom Rayner, in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, he listed his own post-mortem analysis. And I meditated on, on this list, and I kind of mixed it together with some of my own thoughts. And so this is what I would, I would say. Uh, first, the church has lost its zeal for local outreach. They become insular. They care more about what makes them happy and peaceful rather than what Christ wants them to do. Uh, the church turned its back on solid and careful teaching of the word and chose to tickle its ears with skillful public speakers that are really little more than entertainers rather than those that exegete the word. The church ceased disciplining sin but tolerated more and more worldliness in the part of its members. The church ceased praying together. Please, if you're in a home fellowship, don't underestimate the prayer time you have together. The church stopped developing godly men as future leaders. Uh, the church spent more of its resources, its time, energy, money on itself, making itself comfortable and, and apparently prosperous than on the spreading of the gospel. The church became more and more worldly in appearance and fit in with the surrounding culture, especially in key moral issues. We're not pressed to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar, but we're pressed on other issues like, like uh, sexual issues, marriage issues, things like that, where we're, we're being forced to conform to the love of diversity as they define it. I mean, it's just that we're being pressed into a mold. And if we do, then we're heading toward death. The church becomes more and more listless and lifeless and cold in weekly life. Not much is going on in corporate worship. You know, there's not that passion, that zeal. The church clung to traditionalism, celebrating the bygone era of past heroes by putting plaques up on the wall and celebrating their achievements. And they hold on to old patterns of ministry long after they're not fruitful anymore. And the church shrank in number, kept getting smaller and smaller in number, and generally tends to go upward in median age as well. Fewer and fewer children. I mean, the joy of listening to the kids sing. It's evident of families that are being fruitful and multiplying and raising up their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But dead churches generally, you don't have a lot of kids. Grandkids might visit for a week, but they're just, there's not a lot. It's not always the case, but it frequently happens that, that the age, the median age of the church just... Decade by decade creeps up. And they're not youth, they're not young people, they're not young families. The church just gets old. A lot of indications of this death. But it's not just an age thing. I've, I've sent, you know, I was talking to my kids about this this morning. Very zealous older people. And I've seen teenagers look dead in the pew. They just sit there and seem to have absolutely no interest in spiritual things. Alright, so Christ commands the remnant, wake up. Look at verses 2 and 3. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. He calls on them to wake up. Jesus has the power to give life to the dead. Revelation 1.18 he says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold I am alive 
forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. All Christians individually were dead at one point, weren't we? Ephesians 2 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work. And those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. And following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest. We were by nature object of wrath. But God because of his great mercy. With which he loved us. Made us alive in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. It is by grace you have been saved. God has that kind of power. Jesus has that kind of power to bring, bring the dead to life. And he calls on them to wake up. I love the, the, the picture of when Jesus raises the dead during his earthly ministry. Remember in Mark 5, that little girl that's dead? And he comes in and he kneels by her bedside and takes her hand so tenderly. And he says to her, Talitha kum. Which means little girl, get up. And she just opened her eyes and woke up. That's the kind of power that Jesus has to raise the dead, as though they're sleeping. He says, wake up. Now, it's not clear at all that he's going to give that kind of power to this church, however. When he said to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth, he gave a resurrecting power to him. But here it seems like you have chosen a tomb for yourself. You have willfully walked into deadness. I'm calling on you to repent and walk out of it. Walk out of your tomb. Wake up. ...out of that spiritual deadness. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. Apparently, verse 4, there was a remnant of people... ...who had not soiled their clothes. He says, they will walk with me dressed in, in white... ...for they're worthy. So they're not blameless. They were part of the slide into deadness. But they've managed to keep themselves from defilement... ...of doctrine and lifestyle. They are worthy, meaning they are genuinely born again. They've been made worthy... Or qualified through Christ. And they will walk with Christ dressed in white. So they will be seen to be righteous in the sight of God. However, they are in great danger. He's warning them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. I picture like a, a, a car accident and somebody's lying there in the road. And their wounds are not immediately life-threatening. But they're bleeding rather significantly. And there's a window of opportunity for this small remnant to wake up and take seriously what's happening. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. So go back to the gospel. Saturate yourself again in God, man, Christ's response. Remember what you've heard, the gospel. Remember that there is a holy God who created heaven and earth. Remember that he created you in his image to have a relationship with God. So you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're unique and special as a human being. But you have sinned. You have violated God's laws. You have broken his ten commandments. You have broken his two great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. You've sinned. And therefore you deserve death. But God sent his son our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, born of a, a, vir, a virgin, lived under the law, perfectly obeyed every command of God his whole life, never sinned, did great signs and wonders to show his deity and his power and his compassion. 
And then most of all, he died a substitutionary uh, atoning death on the cross. He died in our place. He was punished for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53.5. This is, this is the gospel. And if you simply repent of your sins, acknowledge that you are a sinner, and turn to Christ, all of your sins will be forgiven. Now, I'm saying this to all of you. You may have been a Christian for decades and are a genuine Christian. You still need to know that message and drink it in and hear it. Remember what you heard and repent of ongoing sin in your life. However, you may be here and you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're not a Christian. You have just heard the gospel. I'm calling on you to come out of darkness into light. Come from death to life by believing in Jesus. But that's what he calls them to do. Repent, remember and repent. Start being the church again. But, verse 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Matthew 24, he's saying, it's like a thief in the night that comes and the owner of the house doesn't know at what time of night it's coming. You better be ready at all times. Now this is not talking about second coming thief in the night. This is more individual coming as a judge to that local church. Similar to the church at Ephesus that have forsaken their first love. He said, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Or the church at Pergamum, he said, I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Or like Jezebel, I'm going to strike you dead and your children dead. He has that power to come. He says, you better wake up and repent and do it quickly or I'm going to come to you and you don't know when I'm coming. Now, as in all of these, he promises rewards to the overcomers. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. So, the overcomers, those who by faith in Jesus are more than conquerors, they are going to get the same cleansing from sin. They're going to be covered in a white robe of righteousness. And Jesus says, I will never blot out their name from the book of life. The book of life is where he writes down the, the names of all of the elect who have repented and trusted in Christ. And who will spend eternity uh, with God in, in heaven. We'll see it again at Revelation 20. There's a book of life and, and you read it and he's saying here, I will never blot out your name. You have eternal life and you will most certainly live forever. Now, some have twisted this to say, yes, but he does sometimes blot out some people's names. They think it implies that. There is no verse any, anywhere in Scripture like that that teaches that you can be genuinely born again, have crossed over from death to life, be justified and forgiven by Almighty God, and then later cross back over from life to death, be unjustified and now condemned. That cannot happen. But he's actually promising the opposite. I will never blot out your name from the book of life, but you'll live forever. And I'm going to give you a name, and I will speak that name to my Father and to the angels. Think about that. Isn't that awesome? I'm going to give you a name that will never be brought out. You care too much about your reputation in the community. You care too much what the people think. That doesn't matter. What matters is what I will say about you. And I'm going to give you a name and a reputation that will live forever. I will speak your name to my Father. I will not be ashamed of you. I will pronounce your name to the Father. And I'll tell the angels what you did. Isn't that awesome? I will tell the angels and my father your history and your works. What an honor. That's the reward to those who, are, who overcome. 
All right, applications. Well, I think be fearful and flee deadness, O church. It is, it is vital for us to hear and tremble at God's word. Don't ever say that could never happen to this church. Oh, it could happen. We need to be on our guard constantly. Step by step, we can slide into apostasy. We can give up our personal prayer time. We can start to cut corners in the prayer closet and, and taking in the word of God. We can start playing a little bit more and more with sins, little sins, and then more bold, bolder and bolder in sin. Last week I talked about secret sexual sin. That'll do it. That'll kill a church. Different things can happen. We lose a taste for genuine Christian fellowship. We start to pick holes in the garments of other Christians and find flaws in them and, and make excuses for not going to church and it happens little at a time. We slide into apostasy. It can happen. Instead, what we need to do is look again at the marks of a healthy church I've given you probably four times. I'm not going to give it again. But just pray. Pray that the pulpit ministry here would be vigorous and not shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God's word. All of it. Pray that we would be vigorous in sharing the gospel in this community. Sacrificially bold in sharing with lost people right around here. Pray that we would continue caring about unreached people groups and missions. Care, pray that we would have a heart for the poor and needy. That we would be sacrificial toward those who are struggling and suffering. Not just in our part of the world, but even in East Africa with the famine. That we would sacrificially give to care for them. Pray that we would care about holiness and be fighting sin by the power of the Spirit. Vigorously active in each other's lives. That we would be vibrant in prayer. And that when we come together for corporate worship, it's, an, it's really an electric time of celebrating every week. Not just Easter, but every week. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to look at this, um, this warning, really. Of a church that was alive. It had a reputation for being alive, but it became dead. God, I pray... Protect us from that. I pray for the elders of this church, myself and the other elders, that you would help us to be vigilant over ourselves and over the flock which the Lord has entrusted to our care. I pray that we would not be arrogant. I pray that we'd be humble, that we would be on our knees and our faces saying, oh God, we could die. If you don't strengthen us, we will. Please, you're the vine, Lord Jesus. We are merely the branches. Help us to abide in you and bear much fruit. God, I pray for more evangelistic fruit. I pray for more baptisms. I pray that the church, the, the people in this church, would be courageous and share the gospel with lost people. And, oh, Lord, lead us to people who are ready to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.